uh, we're again going to look at uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, this year we've been in John, and uh, we are going to continue uh, in John 18 uh, this morning. It, uh, the story takes a turn. We've left the upper room, and now we are headed, um, Jesus is headed to the cross. And so in our passage this morning, uh, we have uh, Jesus uh, being arrested. So what's printed in your bulletin, I'm not going to read all of that. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 to 14. And so here, as I read God's holy and inerrant word to you, hear God's word from John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Let's pray. Father, we know that your word is perfect. We ask that you would use it to revive our souls this morning. That your word would make the simple wise to your truth, that your word would enlighten us to understanding, that we would understand you, our King. Lord, give us ears that can hear your word. And we pray for faith uh, to believe this word and ask that you would hear us in Jesus' name. Amen. In October of 1974, One of the most famous sporting events in history took place in the country of Zaire. It was dubbed the Rumble in the Jungle. The fight was between the former champ, Muhammad Ali, and the new young champion, a young George Foreman, who would later go on to find his true life's calling as a purveyor of fine indoor electric grills. But... In 1974, he was the heavyweight champion of the world. 
It was thought that through his sheer strength and power, uh, that Foreman was going to be way too much for the older Ali. For the first few rounds, that really seemed to be true. Uh, Foreman was just hitting Ali over and over. Ali was retreating, he was leaning against the ropes, and Foreman landed blow after blow. Some who were there thought that Ali might not make it out of the ring alive. To the casual observer, it looked like really bad news for Ali. It looked like he was losing and that he was headed for defeat. And you would think that Foreman was in complete control of the fight. But if you thought that, you would be wrong. Though it looked like Ali was taking a beating, he was actually just waiting for his opponent to wear down. In what would later be called the rope-a-dope, Ali was leaning against the ropes, uh, leaning against the ropes to help him absorb the punches from Foreman. He kept on taunting Foreman, telling him to punch harder. And of course, Foreman did. And it went on like that for seven rounds. But in the eighth round, uh, Foreman began to get tired. And Ali saw an opening. And with just a few seconds left in the eighth round, uh, Ali landed a shot that I'm sure still hurts George Foreman to this day. Landed a shot that knocked him to the ground, and Ali won the title back. The legend of the rope-a-dope was born. Though it, seemed that, though it seemed that Ali was in chaos, he actually was in control the entire time. It looked like he was losing. It looked like things were going terribly for him, but he was actually in control the entire time. And we see something similar this morning. You can read the text this morning, and you can think that Jesus is losing, that things are spinning out of control for him, that the wheels are coming off of this whole Messiah project that he's got going and that it's about to have a crash landing. Just in this chapter alone, uh, Jesus is going to be betrayed by one of his closest followers. He's going to be sold out for 30 pieces of silver. There's going to be a small army that's going to come and arrest him. He's going to be taken away and put on trial, and one of his closest followers is going to deny him three times. It looks like this is the end. It looks like this whole thing is about to crash and burn. But if you think that, you would be wrong as well. What I want to show you in this passage is that despite how it looks, that Jesus is actually in control. That's true in this passage, and it's true today, that Jesus reigns and he is in control, that life might seem like chaos, but Jesus is in control. So I want to look specifically at verses 1 to 11 and point out three ways that Jesus reigns, that Jesus is in control when it seemed like chaos. And the first is that Jesus knew what would happen to him. The second is that Jesus will keep his own. And the third is that he will drink the cup. So the first way that we see this is in verses 1 to 7, where we see that Jesus knew what would happen to him. The writer affirms this truth in verse 4, where John writes, Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. None of what takes place in this passage or in life is a surprise to Jesus. Not the betrayal, not the arrest, not the denial by Peter. It was known to him, and he controlled all of it. And so just to set the scene of where we are in the passage, Jesus and his disciples, they've left the upper room. Jesus has washed their feet. He has prayed for them. They leave the room, and they head, and they take about a half-mile walk out of Jerusalem, down a ravine, 
across the brook, back up a hill to a garden. John notes that this was a common place for them to gather, so common that Judas knew that they would be there. And remember that Judas had left the twelve uh, earlier that night, that after Jesus had washed his feet, that Judas left, and John says that Judas left and it was night. And so while he was gone, he's gathered this group, he's gathered a band of Roman soldiers. It's not exactly known how many soldiers were there, but just using the word that uh, John, Yo, uh, John chose to use, there's probably 200 soldiers, at least, that are there with him. And it's not just uh, soldiers. They weren't even leaving anything to chance. These were, this was the first century SWAT team. Uh, these were highly trained soldiers that were with him. Uh, he, had, he had 200 soldiers after Jesus at this time. And the chief priests were there, and the Pharisees were there too, and they've got weapons and lanterns and torches. This is a big gang coming after Jesus. But I want you to notice the diversity that exists in this group, uh, that you have the chief priests there. These were the cultural elite of that time. Uh, these were the people who were the upper crust of Jewish society. You have the Pharisees who were there to arrest Jesus. Uh, they were the ultra-religious, the good church-going people, the pious people. And you have pagan Roman soldiers. In this group, you have Jew and Gentile. You have young and old. You have insider and outsider. And what do they have in common? Nothing on the external. What do they have in common is they want Jesus dead. They're all coming after him. And they all hate him. John is making the point to us is that if left to ourselves, every human will hate Jesus. That it's not about your race, it's not about your social standing, it's not about your views on religion or your own morality. If left to ourselves, we will hate Jesus. Because we all want to be our own gods, we want to be our own saviors, we want to be sovereign over our own lives, we want to rule our life. And anything or anyone that comes against that, we do not like. We will stand against that. And so you can imagine the disciples and Jesus in the garden. It's night. And you can see the torches going down the hill, across the brook, back up. A line of torches coming towards them. And as they gather in the garden, Jesus steps forward. He's not hiding. He steps forward and he says... Whom do you seek? It's interesting that this is nearly identical to the, the first question that Jesus poses in the Gospel of John. Back in John 1, he sees, Jesus sees John the Baptist and two of his disciples, and he asks them, what do you seek? And it's the identical question that Jesus will ask Mary Magdalene in three days at the resurrection. Mary Magdalene will come to him and he will say, whom do you seek? This is the question that John wants his readers and wants us to answer. Whom or what are we seeking? John tells us his goal in writing this gospel is that we would seek Jesus. That we would believe in his name. We would believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing in his name, by believing in him, we would have life in his name. So Jesus asked this militia, this gang, this army that is gathered, 
he asked them, whom do you seek? And they replied, Jesus, Nazareth. And he replies, I am he. Three, it's a three-word answer in our, in our translation, but in the original language, it's just a two-word response from Jesus. He says, I am. The response of Jesus, Jesus says, whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus' response is, I am. He gives them the divine name of God, the name that God gave Moses at the burning bush. And if you've been here through our study of the Gospel of John, Jesus' response is not a surprise to you. Jesus uses the divine name. He uses I am all throughout this Gospel. And just with those two little words, I am, John tells us that the whole crowd gathered, drew back, and fell to the ground. At the name of Jesus, hundreds of soldiers, the chief priests, the Pharisees, and even Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, they all fell to the ground. The power in this scene is not with the SWAT team. True power is not with those who are holding weapons and torches. With just two little words, they fell on their backs. The power of the name of Jesus, the power of His Word, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that He is Lord. In the light of the power of Jesus, no one can stand. In the garden, we see just for a moment a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. His glory that was veiled in His incarnation was on display. We get a glimpse of Jesus' infinite and matchless power in the garden. They knew that this was no ordinary man that they were arresting, that they were out of their league. These men thought that they were in control, but it was Jesus who controlled all things. But notice that they meet Jesus in a garden. Uh, The confrontation between Jesus and And this gang takes place in a garden. And it's not the first garden confrontation that we see in the Bible. If you remember back at the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, we have another garden. We have the Garden of Eden. In that first garden, we have the first Adam. And in that garden, all was delight to him. All was perfect. It was a perfect world. And Adam enjoyed perfect fellowship with God. But in this garden, this garden we see in John 18, we have the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And to him, all is darkness. This is a world of betrayal, a world of abandonment, a world of violence. We have two gardens. We have one where life began, and we have another where Jesus' life is beginning its end. A garden of life in one and a garden of death in the other. In one garden we have man falling into sin, Adam and Eve eating of the tree. In this garden we have Jesus in obedience overcoming sin for us. In the first garden you have Adam 
hiding from God. He sins and he runs. He covers himself with fig leaves and the voice of God calls to him and says, Adam, where are you? But in this second garden, Jesus is not hiding. He seeks out those who are coming to arrest him. There is no hiding. He steps up and he says, I am he. In the Garden of Eden, there was a tree of life which brought death to us. And in this garden, there is a view to a tree of death, the cross of Christ, which will bring life to us. In one garden, God said to Adam, obey me and you'll live. In this garden, God says to his son, obey me and you will die. We have two gardens. John is showing us in this passage how Jesus is undoing, how Jesus is redeeming everything that Adam lost in that first garden. That from the beginning of time, Jesus knew what he was to do, that he would die, that he might redeem for himself a people, that he is in control, though it might look the exact opposite. Jesus knew what was happening. He had the power to stop it. But he willingly endured what was ahead for him. Which brings us to the second point. Jesus not only knew what was happening, secondly, we also see that he was keeping his own. After Jesus announces who he is and these guys are picking themselves up off the ground, Jesus says it again. Who do you want? And again they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And he tells them, I told you. I am. If you want me, let these guys go. It was assumed that if the disciples were there with Jesus, that they would be arrested just the same as he was. But notice, Jesus is not asking them, would you pretty, pretty, pretty please, if it's okay with you, would you let my disciples go? There's no asking here. Jesus is demanding, he is commanding that they be released. Let these men go. And with that, with those words, let these men go, we hear echoes of Moses before Pharaoh. When Moses, who had encountered God at the burning bush, goes to the most powerful man in the entire world and he says, let my people go. But here, in this passage, we have a better Moses, who would lead his people from the exile of sin and death to a better promised land. Here, in this passage, we have a better Moses, who would not just announce the plagues on the nation of Egypt, but who would take those plagues on himself. Here we have a a better Moses, one who would not offer up a lamb for the firstborn, but the firstborn of God, who would offer himself up a sacrifice for sins. John tells us in verse 9 that the disciples were released, that they left. They were released so that the word that Jesus had spoken would be fulfilled, that he had lost none of those whom the Father had given to him. It's because from this point on, most of Jesus' ministry had been done with other people, but from this point on, Jesus is going at it alone. He's saying, let them go. It's really me that you want. I will endure what is ahead myself because I will lose none 
of those that the Father has given to me because I will die in their place. Because I'm going to die, they will live. Jesus is going to give his life for theirs. Substitute his life for theirs. And their death will be his. And he will lose none of his own. Brian Chappell, in his book, In the Grip of Grace, writes about a young girl named Cecilia. Cecilia was one of 156 passengers on flight 225 that took off from Detroit, headed to Phoenix. Soon after takeoff, there was a problem with one of the wings, and the plane crashed. It crashed on a highway outside of Detroit. Of the 156 passengers, 155 died. Cecilia was the only one of the 156 that made it out alive. Uh, The first responders who were there insisted that there was no way that she could have been on this flight, that she must have been in one of the cars that were hit by the wreckage. But when they checked the flight registry, there was Cecilia's name. She was on the flight. What they learned is that she survived the crash because her mother was sitting next to her. Her mother undid her seatbelt. And her mother uh, got down on her knees in front of Cecilia, wrapped her arms around her four-year-old daughter, and held on. She shielded her child's body with her own. She held onto her daughter as the plane crashed to the ground. She did not lose her own. She kept her child. She kept it even though it meant that she would die. There was nothing that could separate. There was nothing that could separate the parent from the child. Not even death would separate the mother and child. And we see Jesus doing that for his own in this passage. That Jesus will lose none. He will lose none that his Father has given to him, even if it will cost him his very life. Jesus is the good shepherd. The shepherd who will lay down his life for his sheep. But how do we know? How can we know that he will lose none? That he will lose none that the Father has given to him? We know because he will drink the cup. He will drink the cup that the Father has given to him. And we see that in verses 10 and 11. Peter decides um, that he's not going to leave this scene without a fight. And so uh, he decides that he's going to pull a knife out. It's really a sword. He called it a sword, but it's really just a big knife. And he proves that he's a better fisherman than a soldier in this. And so he pulls out a sword. And this is really first century Barney Fife stuff here. Um, we have one sword going against a few hundred soldiers. I'm not sure exactly what he thinks he's going to do. Uh, and his aim with the sword is not great. He doesn't hit the neck. He hits the ear. And he just barely nicks the ear of the high priest's servant. Peter is quickly rebuked by Jesus. He says, put your sword away. This is not how the battle will be won. This is not even your battle to fight. Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? 
In the Old Testament, many times, uh, the cup was pictured as uh, the wrath of God against sin. The cup was God's divine judgment against sin. You read in places like Isaiah 51, where God says, I'm going to pour out my judgment on my people. They're going into exile, and I'm going to pour out judgment on them. So the cup that the Father had given to Jesus was a cup of divine wrath. It was a cup of death that he had given to him. A cup that was filled to the brim with the wages of sin. It was a cup of God's righteous wrath against sin. A cup that had my name on it. And a cup that has your name on it. A cup that we rightly deserve to drink ourselves. But a cup that is not given to us. The cup of the Father is given to the only Son. And His Son will drink the cup to its dregs. Jesus on the cross consumed the wrath of God. It was ours to drink, but He drank it for us. This was a cup for sinners, but the sinless one drank it. And there is a beautiful substitution that happens that takes place for all who believe, a great exchange. That His glory is exchanged for our unholiness, that His righteousness for our sins. He takes what was in the cup. He takes our sin, our brokenness, our shame and our guilt. He takes it on Himself and He gives us His perfect record, His righteousness, His perfection, and His holiness is credited to us. We see here what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so if you are here this morning and you trust in Jesus, there is nothing left in that cup for you. The cup of God's wrath has been emptied by Jesus. There is not one drop left. It is bone dry. And it will never be filled again. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what we hear from others, what we tell ourselves, is that there is still something in the cup. There still remains a few drops. The cup is empty. The cup of God's wrath is empty because Jesus drank it For you, your sins are forgiven. Sins of the past, present, and future. The debt stored up for you because of sin has been paid for by Jesus. When on the cross He said it is finished, He meant it. Your sins have been marked paid in full. And the cup is dry. The cup of God's wrath is empty. But we are given another cup. At the table before us this morning, we are given a cup of God's kindness. A cup of God's mercy and goodness to us. Not a cup that is empty. No, a cup that is overflowing with blessing for us. At the table, we are reminded that we are given what we could not and did not earn. On the table, we have a cup, but it is not a cup of wrath. It is a cup 
of blessing. It is not the cup that we deserve. It is not the cup that we earned. Not the one that we can work for. It is a cup of free grace to those who would acknowledge their need of a Savior. And at this table, there is a cup of blessing that has no bottom. It has no end. That will last forever and ever. A cup of blessing that was purchased for us by the blood of Christ. His ultimate suffering brought ultimate blessing for us. But yet there still remains a cup of wrath for those who do not trust in Jesus. A cup reserved for those who choose to live apart from Christ, who run away from Him, who will bear the burden of their own sins, who believe that they can make it on their own. It's the same cup of wrath that I deserve and that all others here deserve. But coming to Jesus doesn't mean that you've got your life together. It doesn't mean that you've figured it all out and you've cleaned yourself up. No, coming to Jesus means that you've admitted that you don't and that you place your faith in the one who does have it all together and who promises to give you what you need. It means that you'll let his record stand for yours. It means that now when God looks at you, he doesn't see the ugliness of your sin. He sees the perfect and complete righteousness and beauty of his son. It means that what you've done in your past is not ultimate. It is not the last word. Your sins do not define you. Even those good things that you have done do not define you either. Your past neither qualifies you nor disqualifies you for his grace. Your goodness does not commend you to him and your badness does not disqualify you from his grace. It is offered freely to those who would come to Jesus, to those who would know and admit their own sin. At this table of the Lord, we are reminded each week that as we come to the table, we get Jesus. We get what we need. We get Jesus, the better Adam, who was faithful in his garden trial. The better Adam, who took the curse of sin on himself. We get a better Moses, who delivered his people from their ultimate enemies of sin and death. And at this table, we get a better cup. Because Jesus drank the cup of wrath that was ours. And we see at this table, as we see in this passage, that Jesus reigns. That he is in control then, and he controls all things now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the cup of your wrath is empty that you drank it all. We pray that you would use this word to convince us of our deep need for you. That you would convince us again of the sufficiency of your work on our behalf. And Lord, we pray that you would use uh, this offering that we are going to take to further your work in us and in our world. Help us to give with cheerful hearts and hearts that love you. And hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.